Welcome to What Goes Around podcast. My name is Anne Frankenstein. And my name is Eamon Murtagh. Before I say anything else, if you enjoy this podcast, if you've listened previously or if you plan to enjoy the podcast we're about to present you with now, tell your friends about the podcast, like the podcast, write a review, everything you can do uh, to help publicize this pod uh, is really, really helpful because we want it to reach the right ears. Um, so hopefully you'll like it. I think in, in anticipation of how much you're going to enjoy it, you should subscribe to the podcast right now. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, then you should subscribe to it now. Right now. Go do it now. <laughs> just, just in a never-ending series of moments <laughs> that stretch out to infinity. The next moment is the one in which you should subscribe. But we digress. And what is on this week's show? Well, we're going to kick things off with my defence of Britpop, which is kind of a polarising thing to say. But once we get into it, you'll see what I mean. Yes, indeed. It's uh, an interesting subject from two slightly different viewpoints. And I will be talking about DJ gigs, which are sort of coming back and sort of going away again. It's a bit of a push-me-pull-me week for the upsetting life of a freelance DJ. What an absolute tease. And sharing her phonographic memories with us today is the incredible, inimitable Joe Wallace of Ramrock Records. She is such a delight to speak to. A real card, as uh, we say back in the old country. Eamon, shall we get into it? I think we should. This is going to be a great one. Let's do it. So, Anne Frankenstein, please tell us what is going around in your world and why do you need to get it off your chest? <laughs> is this LBC now? LBC for music. <laughs> very like, oh, annoying. Someone a very annoying question in a very <laughs> annoying way and they're going to completely disagree with it and then we're going to talk about it for I don't forget the, That I've got to compare it to the Premier League. Don't forget the football analogies. And the first person to mention Hitler gets a red card. <laughs> Well, someone may mention Hitler in this conversation. I wanted to talk to you. I know we've done many um, make-me-believes about certain polarising genres of music. For example, noise we did, jungle music we've done, mm -hmm. uh, thanks to some amazing guests. So we're used to covering these polarising uh, genres of music, but I don't think we've been quite brave enough in terms of how far we've gone because I think music is a very personal thing. I, you know, people use music... Um, as a representation of who they are. A lot of people who love music um, tend to, to be proud of the fact that they're super open-minded. But there are some genres that just get completely dismissed without any credit um, uh, that I've come across. And one of those genres of music is Britpop music. Everyone universally seems to shit all over Britpop without giving it any credit for anything. I'm surprised you say that because... Um like to me, uh, a Britpop is like the most standard in ordinary land out there where the boys and girls live mm -hmm. that I don't talk to. Um, the Britpop is just, it's like, it's Britpop Stone Roses is like, it, it's the rebellious music for people who aren't terribly rebellious. But I'm not talking about indie music or like baggy music. I'm talking about the, the Britpop movement. I'm talking about me being 11 years old in 1996, yeah. having, you know, cutting out a picture of menswear and putting it up on my wall. Why do I have to feel ashamed of that? I mean, it's not something <laughs> I would listen to now. I just find it amazing how much ire it's treated with. Because for me... 
Um, I, when I was, so yeah, I was born in 1985. And so I came of age right in the heyday of, of Britpop music. Select magazine was still around then. I used to read Q and Mojo and Smash Hits. And uh, to me, it just seemed, it was the first kind of movement that I'd really been mm. cognizant of and been old enough to be involved in. And obviously, it was a revivalist thing, but that led me on to all kinds of other great music that I never would have discovered. I started listening to The Who and The Small Faces, um, which led me back through to um, older blues music, Helen Wolf and Muddy Waters. And it really, I credit it with introducing me to a lot of the music that I came to love, music that I still love now. Um, it was a real portal for me. And uh, I'm sure it was the same for a lot of people. I think the fashion was really cool. You know, um, people like Jarvis Cocker. The, the Pulp A Different Class was like the first album I ever bought. I bought it on cassette when I was like 10 or 11. Um, and the, the style, I just, I'd never seen anything like that before. It kind of set me off on this path to being um, a, a really kind of committed retrophile. And I just find it, it, it hurts my heart a little bit that people are so so dismissive of it because it was a real gateway drug for me and many others i'm sure who who, who dare, dare not come forward uh, I mean, I, I, as i say i i don't really i don't really see this as uh, uh, the, the Britpop massive being a, an oppressed minority at all <laughs> i think very much in the majority ordinary land is full of people who uh you know who like to uh, sing along to to oasis at top volume and uh, I think um, Britpop uh, has problems for me, probably because I am a little bit older. Mm -hmm. um, it was by far the least interesting thing that was happening in the country. There were so many amazing, brilliant, fantastic things that were happening then that were brand new. That for me, even though, like, because I, you know, I love my retro music and I like uh, the odd song by Blur and I like the odd song by Oasis. I'm not like absolutely heartfelt against it, but my point would be that. As a movement, it was very, very constructed mm. and the quality bar was all over the place. I mean, sure, I, I would never go into this conversation and, and, and aim my ire at suede or pulp. You know, they came out of it with honours and they, they did themselves proud. And I would never take away from, you know, the fun of the whole Blur Oasis thing. That's great. But when you start slipping a bit further down the chain and you're, you're, you're listening to Sleeper and Dodgy and Echo... Hang on, Sleeper? You put Sleeper on your list with Louise yeah. Werner, one of the fucking yeah. coolest women of the 1990s. Just boring coffee table indie. Boring. <laughs> but it wasn't boring to me. Like, to me, it's like, no, that, no. Was a, that was a movement to me. That was like the first... The, the, this music was revelatory. Like I had no frame of reference for it. So it was completely new to me. And the way they performed on stage and their clothes and their hair and everything else. Like to me, it was... To me, th this was like a, 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 a pop culture revolution. And that's what I guess mm. I mean. I feel like it doesn't get... People are extremely dismissive of it. And it doesn't get the, the credit. I'm not saying that I'm looking back at it wistfully and thinking, man, that was so great. But I feel like it doesn't... It doesn't get that much credit as a movement people are very I, dismissive I, I, of it personally i think it gets too much credit <laughs> but hey but to. you're talking about people who still kind of look back with nostalgia and like listen to oasis like boneheads who just want to fucking you know sing along with wonderwall at a festival or whatever like that's not what i mean i i mean more like uh I think, I think you're, I you're saying like, the idea was sold to you as a youth. The idea was sold to you as this. There was this rock and roll thing happening, and it was, 
you know, fertile ground for you because uh, once you'd heard these kind of retro styles of music, it did open up into a world and the way they were dressed and stuff opened you up into a world where there were other great things to explore. And that's all fine. That's great. But um, when I try and think about what I would, you know, term a, a real movement of music, a real um, exciting moment, something that really changes things uh, profoundly in music, I don't think Britpop did change things very profoundly. I think what it did is it kind of brought back an old mentality mm. and it kind of brought back um, a sort of nostalgia for how rock and roll used to be. And I think that's fine and I can totally understand it because you know, there was so much electronic stuff going on at that time um, and everything was so new that a lot of people, a lot of older people felt totally alienated by it and a lot of younger people were still, you know, they're still brought up on their mum and dad's record collection or whatever. It was just, to me... I can understand why people would enjoy it, but as someone who was a little bit older at the time, the the selling of the the branding of Britpop seemed really contrived, mm. and I thought I thought the quality was all over the place, and I thought really the most important thing for me was it ignored all of the innovation and the amazing things that were happening elsewhere in music that I just found a million times more interesting. I mean, great, I love your catchy guitar jingle jangle sound, and I, I love your rhyming shining with lining and <laughs> king with thing and you know all that and i like your mockney cockney girls and boys and all that business that's all fine right but none of that was new to me mm. none mm. of it was new jungle was brand new never existed before Do you know um mm. a few years before that um techno and house were coming out in a way that just i just i'd never heard those sounds ray was completely off the planet and if you go back further things like bebop was so hard and so different to what had come before. Rock and roll was so different to what was allowed to be played before. And even the jazz when it came over here, it was so different. None of those things were really reviving an older scene. Mm. Or if they were, they were taking it and absolutely deconstructing it and putting it back together again. Whereas I feel as talented as all these musicians were, and I don't pretend that any of them are without merit, I just think... Um, most of of that era of music in turn, that is called Britpop, a lot of it is bereft of new ideas. They have traditional ideas. It's almost like folk music to my ears, mm. because at the time I would have rather listened to Massive Attack, or or Goldie, or you know any number of interesting smaller genres. I think the reason it became such a thing is because it was a media creation and the media wanted a, a Beatles and Stones scenario because they could get their teeth into that and they understood it. And they were flailing at the time because all of the cultures that were popping off all over the place, didn't. we didn't need them. We didn't need the media. The Jungle Rays happened without it. The Techno Rays happened without it. It was like maybe two pages in, in the back of Melody Maker or something. But most of the rest of it was pretty ignored do you mm. know what i mean yeah yeah and, and so so we got resentful about about Britpop. pop yeah. that's how i felt yeah it's that's interesting to hear you say that because like i was just so i wish i could go back to being that naive do you know what i mean i am at the stage in my life now where i am constantly you can constantly trace one thing back to another thing do you know what i mean like i feel alienated from brand new stuff and then i feel bored and jaded of uh of things that, that seek to copy other other things. I feel like I can hear old music um, in a lot of the music that's being put out now. And I guess maybe that's what I valued so much about Britpop is that it was unfamiliar to me. 
Um, you know, it, it led me back towards all the things they were taking. And also, I, I wasn't cynical in the way that I couldn't spot that it was a media construction. To me, it just seemed I didn't really know or care where it came from. And I didn't understand what the music industry was or why something would be in a magazine uh, as a priority over something else. So I guess it was my naivety as well that makes me look back on it um, as, as a happy time. But we can all agree that Justine Frischman is a style icon. Yeah, she was we cool. Like, there are lots of bands who were kind of thrown in with it that I do like. You know, I did like the first Alaska album a lot. I even like the second one a little bit. Mm. Um, uh, I absolutely love Pulp all the way through. But, you know, for me, Pulp, they weren't really a Britpop band. They've mm. been going for 10 years, nearly. Yeah. So they, why, are they, yeah. why are they a Britpop band? That's rubbish. They're just a great band that happened to mature at that time in the mid-90s. Well, they rode that wave, didn't they? I mean, they were put in, yeah. they were put in, put into that Britpop category because of their, because of Jarvis Cocker's style and everything else. And so I guess that's just kind of the wave that they, that they rode in on. A band like Pulp had already made an amazing back catalogue of great stuff and they hit their prime and yeah he was great copy and the Gallaghers were great copy but you know again Suede, Suede had already done a masterful album mm. before the Britpop thing it was just the press that kind of made Suede part of that narrative as a matter of fact it was that probably that select cover that made the whole <laughs> narrative you know what a great magazine um, uh, yeah it was a great magazine and they were great times and I, I, I do have um, sympathy for people who are into it and I think it's great <laughs> <Sympathy>. <laughs> what I meant was when I'm being when I'm being a bit dismissive of it I understand it's, it means a lot to you and I and you know there's some great music involved in all that but it was in my eyes a a step backwards not a step into the future mm. and that and the ensuing kind of mania and how that brought all these absolute dweebs out in their fucking denim jackets and, you know, parkers with terrible sun hats. You know, that was not where it was. I, I would be highly unlikely to sit down and actually listen to something from that era. Highly unlikely. Mm. I mean, if it came up on my shuffle or something, I would listen to it. This, it's not stuff that I listen to with nostalgia, but I guess I, it's just interesting talking to you about it. Um, because it came to you at a time when you're a lot less naive. And for me, I guess it's more that I was getting frustrated with not being able to cite it as like a significant influence in my life. I mean, it was only a couple of years that it was at the forefront of my taste. And then I went on and got into Frank Zappa and all kinds of other weird shit mm. um, or whatever I was listening to then. But that was my that was my my gateway. And it's, it would be nice to be able to credit that without a bunch of middle aged DJs jumping down my throat about it. No, I try not to I, I do try not to get involved in conversations around it because I actually I don't like it. I don't like a lot of it. I, I have I have my reasons for not liking it. But I know it makes a lot of people some people fucking live for the blue tones. I don't <laughs> get it. I just don't get it. You know, some people think Cooler Shaker are the most overlooked band in the last fifty years. I don't get it. Mm. Spare a few big acts maybe i could count them on one hand uh, there is not a lot from that scene that i would ever wish to listen to again mm -hmm. i just wouldn't even if it was on the radio i'd be looking for something else do you know what i mean mm. just oof, awful amen murder what goes around 
Well, um, what goes around at the moment is that uh, the ice of the iceberg is finally starting to melt and small cracks are appearing and gigs are once again washing up on my island shore like little tiny bottles of hope bobbing on the ocean. These metaphors, this and the uh, and the bad butter, these metaphors. <laughs> They're never going to really... be bad butter. <laughs> we should start a blues band called Bad Butter. <laughs> That's Be another awesome. project for another time. Focus on the pod. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> well, just saying, you know, it seems like uh, things are beginning to melt away now. I did have, uh, I've been, I've had about two or three outdoor gigs and I was supposed to, and I'd been blessed with the weather, blessed with it, mm. I say. Um, but then, unfortunately, the last one I did uh, got rained off or didn't get rained off. But it might have been there was lightning in the air. Anyone could have died. We had to stop. <laughs> um, but then the very next night, word from the booth came to me that uh, the law has once again changed now. And the Musicians Union are uh, put out a thing saying, well, you can now have musical acts indoors. It all seems very arbitrary, doesn't it? I'm curious to see what the outcome is. And I will be paying you a visit. At the yeah. next gig you play there. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll just meld that piece straight into... Uh... So, we asked you to come along and find out what was going on while I was hard at work. <laughs> I'm also hard at work. Although mm. Vox Pops are more like fun. It's half past ten at night. I'm wandering through Hackney Wick. These are the ambient sounds of Hackney Wick you can hear. I'm here because I'm curious about what it's going to be like in a post-COVID age where people aren't really allowed to dance. It's going to be very strange and I'm looking forward to seeing Eamon DJing again. I can see him through the window. <laughs> That's the sound of sweet soul music coming out of the hops. There's my pal, Eamon. Hello. I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. A little bit strange, but it's all all right. There yeah. are people here. We are playing inside and um, there's no dancing. Yeah, so I was just explaining. I've been rambling a little bit. Well, I was rambling on my way here. And then someone came out of the shadows and pinched my bum and ran away. Still got it. Still got it. <laughs> That was my that was my first thought, and then obviously I was deeply offended. Yeah. <laughs> but well, anyway, you know, take it as take it as the shallow compliment. <laughs> it was probably not intended to be. All right, I'm going in. That's the sound of Dawn Penn, played by my dear friend Ben, who I haven't seen in a long time. Are we hugging? I got a mask on. Legendary soul DJ, purveyor of many seven inches. DJ Ben, how are you? Yeah, good. I wouldn't say legendary. But... Well, you're a legend in my eyes, especially because I haven't seen you in so long. Yeah, I, th I think the last time I saw you, I was on a really bad Tinder date and I bumped into you in a pub. I think I was trying to give you some kind of eye signals, yeah, yeah. like rescue me. But yeah, unfortunately, I didn't get rescued. What's it been like for you not playing gigs over the past six months? It's been pretty hard. I've really missed it. Um, definitely missed Damon. Um, you know, four months stuck inside, been pretty crazy. He's missed you as well. He talks about you a lot. So he's, a, he's an angel, isn't he? He's all right. <laughs> I wouldn't say he's an angel. This is a really nice vibe. Do you think so? Yeah, this is lovely. You know how I like, you know, 
reasonable volume music, sitting down. This is my jam. I do a podcast with the guy who's DJing over there. It's called What Goes Around. And I got the short straw and I'm in charge of doing Vox Pops. Basically, we haven't been able to do any like on location pieces since the start of lockdown. But I'm really curious to talk to people about what it's like to come to a bar like this, where the urge, you know, the... the yeah, well, exactly. Because, like, you want to get up and dance, right? You're not allowed. I'm having a dance. Absolutely. What's it like to come to a place like this and have music like this and not be able to dance? Honestly, perfect. I'm a terrible dancer, but I love drinking, so it's a perfect combination. <laughs> Everyone's a terrible dancer, though. That's true. Some of us just know we're terrible and some of us don't. Do you feel safe being around other people in the context of like a packed bar? Or are you just kind of over it now? I think I've been working the whole time. Really? So I've been, yeah, I manage student accommodation. So I've been sort of mingling the whole time. So for me, it's like nothing changed that much except that I couldn't have fun anymore. And so for now, I'm like, finally, let me enjoy myself. You're, you're, not, you're not into the idea of socially distanced dancing. You feel like the spotlight is a bit too much on you. Sounded like saying you into the idea of wearing a condom. <laughs> That's very good. I like that. I like that you, that you, you know, it's true. I wish more people had that attitude. I thought I would come out here to chat to people about what it's like to be in a bar like this with this great music and not be able to dance. I can't dance on two occasions. One, because of social distancing, and, and two, because I've broken my ankle and I love nothing more to dance. This is the closest thing I have to it, and I'm grateful for it. Oh, how did you hurt your ankle? I mean, I didn't break it. Some bitch who's playing tag rugby against me ran into me on purpose and, and broke my ankle. Yeah. Jesus! I'm returning to Amy. My mask keeps slipping down my face. They were nice. Were they nice? Yeah, they are loving the tunes. We have good people here, the hit I feel like I've been spotted with my microphone now and everyone else is eyeing me up really terrified. I feel like the manager is looking at me like he's going to have to call Celine. But you know that thing home. that you get where like, if someone has a microphone near you, you go, oh, hi! <laughs> yeah, I'm the only person in the world who's like that. There's got to be someone else here who's real desperate for fame. That guy over there is giving you a long look, I think. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he's the one that pinched your bum earlier, I don't know. <laughs> he could be, yeah. I can't help but notice the people who I was chatting to uh, are now getting up to leave. I think I, may have ruined, I think I may have ruined the momentum of their whole night. I just came up and interrupted the good thing they had going on. Another win for Frankenstein promotions. <laughs> I am terrifying. This right, is my cross to bear. And talk to some other poor bastard. <laughs> okay, okay. I feel like people aren't drunk enough. I also feel like the management. I play records. <laughs> That's true. I'm working. All right, then. I'm working, too. I'm just not getting paid. There is a nice vibe going on in here. There's a lot of hand sanitizer by the door. And they're obviously paying a lot of attention to seating people in a socially distanced way. I think if it were left up to the people in here, they probably wouldn't take that much responsibility. But the management are really on it. So, I do a podcast with Eamon, and I brought my little Zoom mic because I just wanted to chat to people about what it's like to be in a place like this and not be able to dance. First of all, I don't want to harass any of your patrons without your permission. And also, I wondered if you'd chat to me a little bit. Have you got two minutes? Okay, cool. So when did you guys reopen? When did we reopen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the 4th of July. Yeah. So literally when we could reopen, we were straight yeah, open yeah. again. 
And what's it like? Um, like, how do you put measures into place in a place like this, where it's usually like absolutely heaving with people, big old dance floor, big rowdy place? How did you? How, how did you feel like you could uh, make it safe for people and you know everything else? Well the good thing is because we're in a warehouse we've got tons of space and like because we've got the side entrance in the front one it means we've kind of got like a one-way thing going which really works so people can like sit down on their table not be bugged by other people and it's kind of like they can still enjoy the environment they're in like, they can't get up and dance which yeah super sucks but like people are commenting and saying like how they not only enjoy being in here and the vibe's really good, but also that, you know, they feel safe and they feel like it's been well thought out. So like the, you know, the measures that we put in place, we feel like are really like working, which is, you know, great. So that was all going very well indeed for about a month. And then the government changed their mind. <laughs> and now all the gigs for the next six months have been cancelled, despite the sterling efforts of the Howling Hops Tank Bar to make it the safest and best place to have a drink and listen to music. I am disappointed. We flew too close to the sun. Someone oh, did. Man. Yeah, <laughs> and we're all icky, ickyrous now. Indeed. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. <laughs> have a fabulous guest for you this week. DJ, producer, label owner, talent scout, museum curator and all-round music obsessive Joe Wallace. Joe is a woman who's been there, seen it, done it and as far as the music industry goes, loved it. She has had her own set of decks since before she was 10 years old and broke the mould for female DJs playing all over the world for the past 30 years. She's been a mover and a shaker all her life, popping up at the 100 Club at the peak of punk, shaking down Glastonbury with her incredible Motown parties, and now she runs one of my favourite labels, Ramrock Records, specialising in reggae, hip-hop, jazz and funk, with artists including Ashley Beadle, Greg Blackman, Camila Wahid, Pauline Taylor and D.B. Cohen and many more. Joe, we are truly delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. And you're very flattering because it's actually been 44 years that I've been DJing. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we have a running joke in this show that no matter how, how hard I try and get the intro, there's always one thing that I get wrong. So I'm Still glad I'm keeping up my... That was in my favour, so I'm almost, you know, um, you know, keep it in there for, for appearances' sake. But um, no, for you is impressive, I, though. How do you, do you guys know each other? You and Eamon, do you go way back, or do you just know each other through Twitter? No. Or what's the story? Oh, it's a very casual affair. Yeah. Um, An affair. <laughs> I did say I'd already pressed record. <laughs> it's just the joy of um, of, uh, of mailing lists, really, that's brought us together. Ah. Uh, it is. It's a, it's a promo entanglement. Oh, yeah. very good. Yes. I like that. Oh, yes. But yeah, I've been a big fan of Ramrock Records for some time, mm. and um, and uh, of course you've been DJing all around the world and doing all sorts of great things. But then I did see the other day that picture of you in the Hundred Club, and I just thought, this woman is ice cold cool. It's too <laughs> oh, too good to be you. true. I mean, really, like what? Well, right there in that, and then all the beautiful funk, soul, disco, reggae you've been bringing out. And so I just thought. 
you seem to be, because this podcast, we kind of bill it as being a podcast of music lovers rather than music makers. And you just look like a perfect candidate for the podcast. So oh, I, me, I chance me, me arm me, on sir. you. Me, me. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm actually in the Getty um, collection. That's from their wow. archive. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Yes, I, I was snapped inadvertently, probably being really mouthy to somebody um, in 1979. And I was wearing the prototype madness um, T-shirt, you know, uh, let, let's forget art and let's dance. And that was given to me in the... Um, I was in Upper Street in Islington and uh, they they had a boot... Madness were there and they had a bootload of these T-shirts and they said, nobody will wear them because it's too sweary. And I said, oh, just give it to me. <laughs> and, I, and I stuck it on and, and this is absolutely true. A copper stopped me just as before I went in the club and he said, um, I'm going to do you for indecent exposure. So I whipped it off and said, that's indecent, and legged it. <laughs> I, was a lot, I was a lot slimmer and a lot fitter then. <laughs> that's amazing. I have to find this picture. I haven't seen it. We'll put it up uh, for listeners as well. It was so Thank cool. You. It was so cool. And, you know, it showed to me immediately that uh, you're one of these people that uh, just loves music. You know, it doesn't, doesn't have to be a particular type or anything. It just has to have that bit of truth in it I guess that's what attracts me anyway mm. um, so I, you know just thought it'd be a very interesting chat and it Lovely. is already that's one of the best stories we've had all, all season <laughs> yes officer uh, <laughs> catch me if you can yeah, yeah I hit 60 this year so I started when I was 16 and and never kind of looked back amazing wow. that was it really what got you hooked yeah. um well I was working in a record shop as a Saturday girl from the age of 13, so mm. that was 1973. And so I had to go out and collect vinyl. So I used to go down to the local record shop in Rochester and they had sheet music. And um, I used to put it, because I, I do actually have OCD, I can't bear anything not to be in alphabetical order. <laughs> and so I used to go and put all their sheet music in order and at the end of the day, they used to say, well, what do you want? And I'd say, have you got any records? And the lady who ran the shop was really kind and she used to give me um, like a bargain pack and they were in candy pink and white striped bags. And um, she used to wink as I went through the, the box and she'd sort of wink, which meant she'd put a Motown single in there for me. Oh, Ah, oh, um, oh, no, bless her. So I just used to get, give them one of these bargain packs. And, um, and that's how I started building up my record collection. And uh, people would say, what do you want for your birthday? Well, it was a no-brainer. Can I have a record token, please? <laughs> and then I'd skip down to the shop and buy obscure gatefold sleeve Vanguard blues albums. And they'd just look at me and think, you're really weird. <laughs> and then, <laughs> when I got to 13, they said, do you want to work here? And I was like, oh, yes, please. Do I get paid and records? And uh, <laughs> they said, yeah, yeah. So I thought, hmm. So I went and worked there. And then one day... I was probably been there for about six months and I came out of the shop and um, in Chatham, the, the town next door to Rochester, it was a big military base. So you had the Army, Navy and Marines and um, there were a lot of clubs and a lot of record shops and, and the best one was called K2 Records and they were what was known as a diary shop and they reported 
to the top 20. You had to write everything in a little diary that you sold. And there was somebody standing outside the shop and they went, you, Joe? And I thought, oh, God, what have I done now? And they said, do you want to come and work at K2s? And I was like, do I get to do all the imports? And they went, well, you read Blues and Soul, don't you? You're weird. And I went, yeah. <laughs> so that was it. I was uh, I never went back to the record shop in Rochester. You're headhunted. I, I was actually headhunted. And um, I went over there and I started work with a wonderful guy called Jack Pantin, who I'm still in touch with. And him and his brother, there was Malk and Jack, and they had a, a disco, which was at the Good Companions. And they used to throw out free records during the discotheque. And oh, I've wow. still got my copy of George McRae, Rock Your Baby, that they crispied <laughs> out into the crowd. That could do you some harm, though, couldn't it? Like a sharp bit of vinyl like that coming out oh, of Oh, the health and safety didn't come into <laughs> they, it, you yeah, know. Yeah. They just used to frisbee it, and if there was any kind of superficial cuts, A&E was only up the road, so yeah. you just had to make your own way up there. But no, I mean, you know, I turned up and they just said, right, you're, you're doing all the import stuff. And I went, okay. And that was it. So I was ordering stuff from the States. And, you know, one of my first big sellers was Open Sesame, <gasps> Cool and the Gang on Delight. Oh, great record. And I can remember getting it in on 7-inch. And, um, and then, you know, 12 inches after that. And mm. then I went to work at HMVs. You had to pass an exam um, at Oxford Street. It was the head office. And I got 99 out of the 100 of 100 and it still remains to this day the highest score of anyone who took the exam in the history of age yeah god what did you get wrong um it was <laughs> and i i will it is perfect has it been eating my, at you all this time <laughs> yes it has and i was i beat myself up ever since it was um it was baden powell and of course i thought it was you know the trick question Right. And uh, I put down Scoutmaster, and in fact, it's a Brazilian folk guitarist. So oh. I will never ever forget that. I would have got a hundred out of a hundred. Um, <laughs> <laughs> damn. So yes, I've never liked Baden Powell since then, no. and yeah, I never buy him. any of his. Yes, I'm sure never ever um, buy any of his music ever. I boycotted him. So um, yeah, that's it. So then I worked there for a year and they put me through the management course and you had to be given uh, a department and my first department was bird song and brass bands wow why did Get they put your... you there was that to take the piss because you'd gotten so no, no. done so well at the exam no 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 you had to learn what was on the shop floor so i i was stuck with this horrible section but as luck would have it, at the Albert Hall, there was the Colliery Brass Band um, competition because this was 1977. So I mm. legged it along. I said, please, can I have an extended lunch hour? And I ran off to the Albert Hall and hustled all these old miners. I said, if you come down to HMVs, I'll give you loads of discount on these rotten old albums. And I cleared <laughs> oh, the section. Wow. So that is some were... business acumen. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, they said, Right, you can have comedy and sound effects. I went, oh, <laughs> gee, thanks, mate. yeah. So, uh, and this is I had a bus like this once. <laughs> right. So, so you know, after doing well, you know, in in sort of uh, bird song and brass bands, they gave me comedy and sound effects. So, Derek and Clive landed, 
you know, there is a God and Derek and Clive landed and um, we shifted something like 22,000 units in the first two weeks. And Christopher Lee came into the shop and you had to serve the customer. If they came up and asked, you had to be on your best behaviour. And he came in and he was in this beautiful Crombie with a velvet collar, very tall, very handsome. And he said, you know, could you tell me where the Derek and Clive album is? I said, yes, certainly, sir. And you had to give the customer the record and then escort them up to the cashiers. And you said, thank you very much. Now the cashiers will take over. Thank you for shopping at HMB. So anyway, as I was doing all of this, all the lads on the singles counter were doing the bat signal and doing, you know, making little fangs out of bits of paper. And I was like, what are you on about? And they said, that's Christopher Lee. And I went, oh, how could I have been so oblivious? Um, but yeah, it was Christopher Lee and he brought Derek and Clive live. Amazing. There you Fantastic. go. I see, yeah. well, you did your job properly and those other layabouts, is, where are they now? Oh, yeah, disgusting <laughs> behaviour. Exactly. <laughs> I, are there, I, I love the idea of brass bands and birdsong being in the same <laughs> section together. What was that about? Well, it was all the old kind of Decca and Ace of Spades um, budget labels. Yeah. And they used to bring out all these really weird things, um, like, you know, the sound of a blue tit on a Wednesday morning <laughs> somewhere in Harlesden. Um, and then, wow. you know, steam trains recorded in, uh, you know, at Clapham Junction in 1953. Very patriotic. <laughs> very, very. So, I, you know, I, I absorb all of this and I, I try and do my best with what I'm given. And then after that, you know, my manager, who really didn't like me, just said, oh, damn you, you know, I'll have to give you what you want now. And I said, well, I want to work in the jazz department. Mm -hmm. And the guy, bless him, who ran the jazz department, um, was a functioning alcoholic. So he had a teapot in the stockroom, which was full of whiskey. He said, I'm just going to top up the tea, dear girl. And um, I used to have to kind of, you know, stock up on all the Blue Note releases and all the current sort of Japanese jazz that was coming in. And, you know, I was 17 when, when um, you know, Ronnie Foster's um, Love Satellite landed. Mm. And it was just like the Martians had arrived. It was <laughs> so brilliant. And um, I, I bought it, you know, with my staff discount. And um, I was called into the office and said, you do realise that you've gone over your your quota and I said, well, I'll just eat, you know, Dundee cake for a month. I don't care. And they said, yes, but we're worried you won't be able to get into work um, because you'll have spent all your train fare. Oh, yeah, there's always that, isn't there? I'll walk. So I nearly didn't get the Rodney Foster album, but I've still got it. And it still winks at me and said, you know, you pulled that one off, Joe. So... Yeah. Glorious. Well, yes. that this is the sort of thing we're here for, I think. Um, uh, and I can see already that you're, you're right from the word go. You're totally surrounded by music. And and really, like, not in a passive way, you're out there rummaging around and getting things done, which is which is really lovely. So why don't you tell us about your first phonographic memory today, which is Millie, my boy, Lollipop? Yes. Um, I'm the youngest of five, and... Um, there's a very big gap between me and the next one. So all my brothers and sisters were kind of mods and modernists um, when I was four. And ready, steady, go. My We didn't have a television until my grandmother um, 
had one delivered in a packing crate in a taxi. She lived in Blackpool and we lived in Rochester and she just thought, you know, we've got to stop all these kids from appearing so I'll buy them a telly. Um, so we got to see Bewitched and Ready Steady Go which was really cool and um, my parents used to go and play badminton, that was their only escape during the week and my brothers were left in charge of babysitting and of course they weren't going to miss Ready Steady Go and they just used to plonk me down in front of it and say if you tell mum and dad you know <laughs> the teddy gets it. So I remember it was, you know, early 1964 when Millie Small appeared on Ready Steady Go and she broke into a live rendition of My Boy Lollipop and my world changed forever. <laughs> I've seen that clip and she does just because she how old was she then she's really young wasn't she She was about 15 because she died in she died this year and she was 72 when she died mm. in May um and you know she really was this extraordinary ball of energy mm. um and people don't they underestimate the power of that tune because without my boy lollipop reggae wouldn't have got into mainstream yeah. And it established Chris Blackwell's island label um, because the funds, he licensed My Boy Lollipop to Fontana because Ireland weren't set up to handle seven million pressings. Seven, um, which million. It was seven million, which it went on to sell. And um, it just, you know, gave them the funds to go forward into the, into the early 60s. And... Uh, it, it was extraordinary that this one track captured the imagination of the whole world. And, um, you know, if you think before then, with the Caribbean population that came over, they had no uh, music to call their own, really. They were still listening to um, rhythm and blues. They were still listening to mento and all these musical forms. And then Millie comes along and that's that's one of theirs. That is a Jamaican girl. She's on, you know, national peak television and she's just blown everything out of the water. And it must have been an extraordinary moment for people mm -hmm. to see them being represented in a very positive and exciting way. And um, my dad, who who we, we had a very kind of classical music upbringing, I was a you know, Royal Chorister and my sister was a concert pianist. Mm -hmm. And um, he he didn't like any pop music at all, but he watched this and he bought My Boy Lollipop. 
and, and you know you've when you get the dad's bow in it you know you've done something right you've cracked it but i still play his copy oh. um when he passed we, we when we went through everything and we found his copy and i still play his copy of my boy lollipop in my vinyl sets so that's that's about you know one careful dad owner and then me mm. so oh, yeah that's a lovely lovely thing lovely yeah. thing um it's so interesting hearing you talk about your upbringing with music and stuff, you know, hearing first off about how you were sort of absorbed into this world of record stores because you were known as someone who was really into, just really into music and really into weird music that maybe other people or other girls your age weren't into. And then obviously you had older siblings who had very strong identities carved out for themselves. How come you, at such an early age, got so obsessed with music and so obsessed with stuff that wasn't necessarily populist at the time was my boy lollipop a sort of gateway drug for you how did that happen um my my eldest brother um used to go to a place called the parlor Mm. um which was on the kind of borders of rochester and chatham and all the mods used to go there and um it had this extraordinary neon sign of the olympic rings Mm. and this giant starburst clock and it used to serve espressos in these little flying saucer cups and saucers you know um and they had a jukebox and all the mods there used to think oh bless her you know she's like a little mascot let's give her (laughs) sixpence to go and put in the jukebox and i memorized um marvin Gaye's can i get a witness and i knew exactly which buttons to press i memorized them and they used to think I was really cool and they used to let me sit on their scooters. I mean, I was four. I <laughs> no. mean, this is, you know, quite precocious yeah. when you think about it. But, you know, I was being um, sort of given the opportunity to listen to things like John Lee Hooker and Howling Wolf because my brother was at, at art college and he was already wearing Levi's and Converse um shoes and and being really cool and he used to smoke licorice roll-ups and, <laughs> I wow, those, you, yeah. you know and he used to sort of f- fancy julie christie and 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 so he was he looked like scott walker i i kid you not mums used to swoon <laughs> at the school gate when i used to get dropped off they say is that your dad no chance um <laughs> but he he used to just you know, play all this blues music, which was very hip. You know, the Stones were listening to all this kind of stuff. And so I was listening to Bo Diddley and and um, very early Stones albums. Mm-hmm. And then um, when my other brother came along, uh, he was kind of introducing me to Captain Beefheart and Cream <sighs> and stuff right. like that and actually putting them on onto the, the record players and saying, right, Joe, I want you to make a comparison between this record and this record. Which do you prefer? And I used to have to sit there and review them. I think they just did it to shut me up, you know, because I'd have to sit there quietly listening to both sides to make an an opinion at the end of it. Dream job, really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that that was that. And, um, you know, I I never ever thought that there was any kind of difference between people. You know, I never sort yeah. of saw a, an age gap. And when I said quite boldly during one episode of Ready, Steady, Go, I'm going to marry Marvin Gaye. And mm-hmm. my brother said, 
there's actually a small problem, Joe. And I said, what's that? He went, he lives in America. It wasn't like he's, he's 20 years older than you. It was like he lives in America. But all my brother's mates who were going off on the, the hippie trail, you know, they were going mm. off to discover themselves and become Buddhist monks. They, you know, they really did become Buddhist monks. Used to give me all their um, seven-inch vinyl because they said, you know, we're not going to need this in Tibet, man. And um, so I used to get, you know, that's how I acquired all my vinyl. Very so cool. Um, yeah, you had a critical your your critical taste. It's, it was almost like it was taught to you. You know, you were sat there having to discern between these two records and and which you liked more. I mean, that is so cool. It's like the perfect storm of elements to you know build a great taste into such a young a young person. Well, should we move on to your second phonographic memory then? Because I'm curious about this one. That's the way of the world. Tell us about yes. this one. Yes. Oh, um, it's it's one of those albums that I was 14 when this was released and then 15 when I finally got my hands on it because it was released um, in mid-March 1975 and I turned 15 on the 27th of March and I had to because our stock hadn't um, our shop hadn't stocked it I had to go to another record shop to order it and I had to go through the whole ritual of the, you know, order book in triplicate with carbon paper and you kept mm. a copy and they kept a copy and you came back two weeks later and there was your record. And I'd heard That's the Way of the World on um, Caroline. You know, I listened, mm. used to listen to the pirate stations and um, it was just like being handed the, the tablets from Moses. It was one of those extraordinary moments when you know, the portal opens and you know what the meaning of life is. And <laughs> it was it was it was so extraordinary that I knew that whatever happened in the future, this track would be with me through thick and thin. It would mm. be my constant. And I still have the album almost in pristine condition, sitting in the record room and it's it's you know when when things have got a bit tough i just go and stick that on and the world's a better place mm. it's an nice. extraordinary album
and I, I think I probably played that track probably 30 or 40 times in a row and that's when my parents said we're going to buy your headphones (laughs) 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 good ploy but you know i kind of did a bit of research because you know i thought i'm coming on here i better know what i'm talking about and um not necessary (laughs) (laughs) but it's actually taken i didn't know this it was taken from a film with the same name that stars harvey keitel Wow. supposedly and... related to me he's in my family oh. tree that's not relevant to this at all and you sh- no, Joe no. you don't have to pretend to be impressed by that I'm so impressed <laughs> my mum once told me that he's somewhere in our family tree that could 100% be a lie that's no good. but uh, I, I'm going to cling to that no, it's uh, well, a me too. me too yes but it was <laughs> um, you know I kind of thought you know when I was listening to what all my um, friends were listening to, which around the time would have been like David Cassidy and and the Osmonds. And, and then I suddenly thought, hmm, is there something a bit wrong with me to be listening to this extraordinary production? You know, Charles Stepney um, co-produced it. You know, anything that's touched by the hand of Charles Stepney is immediately gets purchased. Um, you know, you can't go wrong with a French horn. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just not. It's it's just so above any production that was out there. And I mean, this is how nerdy I am. When when I got the album, um, I found out that Ramsey Lewis had brought out um, an album called Don't don't it feel good Hmm. and that featured that's the way of the world and of Hmm. course you know i have to rush out and buy everything that's a cover of anything you know like call me how many (laughs) copies of call me can you have um and that's the way of the world i have been on a mission um since 1975 to amass every single version however dreadful of um, that's the way of the world so if you've wow. got any let yeah. me know <laughs> we can compare notes i'm wondering because uh, are, are they all in their own section or do you have to go through the a to z because you said you're you a militant about the that. a to z yeah that's what I'm i like afraid. to hear <laughs> but but then you can cross reference and then when i actually have the the title referencing that's okay they're all grouped together then but i don't group the albums together no 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 i'm afraid i couldn't do that that'd be right against my <laughs> get to sleep at night. gotta have a system <laughs> how many how many versions do you have now um i think i've probably got about six okay yeah yeah there are more Solid. out there yeah yeah and um there seemed to be quite a lot done in the 80s by people who played alto sax um and some trumpet versions um but uh yeah and the, the other thing is after the love has gone uh, and oh, can't oh, hide gee. love so don't oh, even yeah, get me started on you know earth wind and fire covers by other people mm. this could be a whole program i'm just thinking like we make a playlist to accompany every episode of this podcast with like music we've sort of touched on um in the podcast good, good, good or bad yeah i'm just thinking like how many how many versions of these tracks are we going to be able to cram into this uh, you'll have to pick pick your top three and we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll stick them all on you top three top again, again again yes um i mean if you're interested there were two at the time you know when when i've heard this album it's it's top of the tree i can't fault it and i won't allow anyone else to fault it and my wonderfully learned friend daryl easley said um you know it's seen as a medication to the rules of living and the album is nothing less than a spiritual soul masterpiece. So, you know, props to Daryl. Um, 
at the time of release, Gordon Fletcher of Rolling Stone said, Lousy production works to this LP's detriment. Morris has surprisingly had the entire album sounding hot. Gordon, what do you know? I'm going to hunt you down (laughs) and I'm going to find you and I'm I'm going to admonish you for saying such a dreadful thing because it was it sounded huge, you know, it it was it was a massive production. If there was one um, thing you couldn't throw at them, it would be it would be that, wouldn't it? Because they they, they were huge. They and and polished as well. It wasn't just like a big blush noise. There was Mm. placement and real like precision in the production. Absolutely. And so Gordon Fletcher, you know, think on 1975 Rolling Stone, you were wrong. So I just thought I'd like to point that out to you. Thank you. Well, so, filed yes. away. Are you planning on on um, someday gathering up all of your covers of of, of that track and of Earth, Wind and Fire tracks and just dumping them on his house? Yes, <laughs> very, I'm, very going with, them. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with the big ice cream van with speakers and just stand outside <laughs> and blast them into Gordon Fletcher's house. See, see, you reap what you sow. Gordon, oh. your cards marked. <laughs> Let us know because I want to be there with our like boom mic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we'll cover it. We'll yeah, cover yeah. it for the pod. Mark. Well, that that's, that again is a lovely thing indeed. Um, now, I have to say, I hadn't heard this particular, your your third choice. I hadn't heard this track before, um, uh, despite knowing the Dells fairly well. But um, what a vocal on this. Oh, oh. I mean, just <sighs> it's it's a bit of a. It's a bit of a sentimental old record, is this? So um, make sure it's a, make sure is the name of it by the day. Yes, right? make sure brackets mm. you have someone who loves you, mm. um, and you know um, it's all about when you know the last act's coming on. You have to make way, and um, when my my second cousin is Stuart McConey, ah. and um, he he is actually my family tree, and um, my mum made it up for a prize. Bona fide, bona fide. Uh, just thrown that in, <laughs> and um, I I went all the way up to Pebble Mill Studios to to be on his radio show. So mm. my mum was so excited because she said, "Oh, is your second cousin, and you're going to be on Pebble Mill?" No, I'm not going to be on Pebble Mill, mum. I'm going to be in recording a radio show. So anyway. Um, he said, you know, what would be your your all-time ender? Because at Northern Soul Nights, it's traditional to have an ender. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and at Wigan, they used to have the three before eight. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Radcliffe, a night with you for the for the first time, and I know what my lips are for. Um, long mm-hmm. after tonight is all over. So my ender was make sure. And... Uh, at these old shoes, which was a club I used to run in London with uh, Martin Thompson and the now departed uh, Paul Thomas Peter. When Stuart said, you know, it's a great ender, I said, well, I'm going to have it for my funeral. That's going to be the one that, you know, I go behind the big red curtain and then an arm's going to come out with a diamante bracelet and a long black glove waving at everybody. <laughs> I'll hire somebody. <laughs> and And sort of a month later, I was doing a gig up north and uh, these guys kind of sidled up to me and said um joe 
we're going to we're going to have make sure because you know you're going to have it for your funeral and we think that's brilliant so we're going to have it too no. so i started this funeral ender cult um, <laughs> and, and over the years you know people have sort of come up to me sideways like little crabs and gone we're going to have it you know make sure that when we die and that's lovely thank you that is a good one of your life are the best of your life for you're young and strong and gay hearts can easily mend and romance has no end time's good to you in those days but when you reach grown up That start in days gone by When you're seized by the fear That the time's drawing near When you must take your bow and say goodbye When you must make room For the next act coming on When your youth and beauty Inside go When you look back and see That time marches on Make sure you have someone A good ender. Are there different? Uh, are there different facets that a track has to have to make it a good ender to Northern oh, Song? Life? What is it about this one? That it's it's the whole, you know, when your youth and beauty are finally gone, you know, it's <sighs> that's well, cold. That's that's cold, but you know when you're going to shuffle off out into the bright light after an all-nighter, mostly your youth and beauty <laughs> has finally gone. That's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> and and things like you know when when your when your set is done, you must make way for the next act coming on. Mm. So mm. it's always a lovely way to sort of welcome people onto the decks, and and it became such a signature tune with me that people would actually sing it. You know, ah. when I, I'd say, right, come on, you know the words. And um, they'd all sing, make sure you have to. And so it's kind of been associated with me mm. um, for years now. And uh, it's a it's a $5 record. And, I mean, I never knew this, but it came off an album in 1968 called Musical Menu. And it's got the worst record cover of all time. And <laughs> There's some stiff competition for that title. <laughs> no, 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 trust me, when you have the word Dells spelt out in scrambled egg, underlined with pieces <laughs> of bacon, and then the Dells are being shaken out of these giant salt and pepper shakers wow. onto Amazing. the breakfast. That's quite awesome. Yeah. Open the gatefold <laughs> sleeve. Oh, it's a gatefold. Yes, yeah, a gatefold, and there's this giant woman inside eating them on a fork. What? I mean, what drugs was the art oh, department on? 
and it, it was just buried on, on on you know it was it was wasn't a brilliant album and that's um, a shame because the cover promised so much i know that scrambled egg enticed me winked at me so i kind of i didn't know about this album until i was researching for the show and i went what on earth so anyway make sure was also co-produced by charles stepney ah. and so there's a very tenuous link between earth wind and fire co-produced by charles stepney and and make sure by the dells co-produced by charles stepney yeah. and you can kind of see this pattern emerging um mm. so you know sometimes when you listen to north street productions which is the production arm of ramrock you might hear the occasional french horn slip in mm. as our homage to the great <laughs> charles stepney All the better for it. i was absolutely blown away listening to it earlier and it, it, it's just what when you get read there's like when i think of northern soul i kind of think of like your big stepping numbers you know sort of like kind of get witness and whatever when it's just like real four to the floor mayhem but the ones that really get you are the ones that are just absolutely packed with emotion and you have to find that right time to play it. Like, haven't you heard you say that now? I think if I'd been at an all-nighter and you'd have played that track and it'd be the first time I'd heard it, I don't think I'd be able to leave. <laughs> no. Well, a lot of people used to cry. I mean, that yeah, is the absolute... Yeah, it's so emotional. Yeah, well, that's my ultimate goal, is to make grown people cry. Um, <laughs> there's a wonderful um, poster that um, Gavel uh, Rafti um, made, and it's called We Love the Music Even If It Makes Us Cry. And um, we, we, as a collective of kind of northern soul people, um, have this wonderful thing called Beat Ballads, and if you want to get into beat ballads a bit deeper, I can give you some notes at the end of the program <laughs> oh, um, yeah. to go off and have a little listen. And, and you will just, you will be rinsed. Trust me, you'll listen oh. to something like Hal Miller, Blessing in Disguise, and you'll be weeping by the middle oh. of it. It's brilliant. I'm, I'm salivating at the thought. Yeah, I need a good weep. I'm desperate for a good weep. Your tears See, after after swelling, months of being yeah. inside, a good, a yes. good balls, balling, balling the eyes, yeah. some some red faced action is what we yeah, need. Exactly. Perfect. Beat ballads give you a legitimate excuse to to cry publicly, and you can say it was the lyrics, it was <laughs> the strings, it moved me. The do have some crazy lyrics. Like the the track I'm most most uh, familiar with um, by them is um, where it on our face which I think is quite a popular one it's just insane I love you so much where can I put all my love I have for you I'm going to put it on my face yes <laughs> what a concept got slight um, rude connotations but it's the intro I never thought it's, about that Joe yes, I never I'm, considered that for a moment shall I just stop there but it's the guy with hitting the piano strings with hammers at the beginning is it yeah what's the crazy um what's your because i guess there's there's a, a sort of um stigma attached to the northern soul community a bit because uh, there's this idea that everyone is you know the, the where it came from so much about cover-ups and stuff and you know being really um uh sort of i don't want to say snobby snobby is not the word i mean but you know what i mean there's an association there with sort of um wanting to have rarer records than everyone else etc etc do you think that's a myth now is the culture a lot more no, no, open no, as you see it no, no full no, of bastards no, no. yesterday <laughs> frank wilson's um do i love you demo signed by 
Frank Wilson mm. was sold for an undisclosed account. Um, I actually held that copy and sniffed the label at one point <laughs> in his <laughs> life. Why did you let um, it go? <laughs> well, I, I had my fingers prized off it by someone, a big boy, oh, um, who wanted it back. But um, it, it's quite odd because, you know, when I started DJing, um, I was going up to Wigan um, in 76 from Chatham and... Um, there weren't any women in the record bar. Mm. Um, women didn't do that sort of thing. And by the time it kind of got to 79, I was running my own nights. Um, I was saying, look, you know, why don't I was going up to West Hampstead where A.D. Crowsdale and Roger Stewart and people like Randy Cousins were, were DJing at, to, at the uh, Railway Hotel. And um, it was the sort of forerunner to the 100 Club All-Nighters. And... Um, I used to say, you know, come on, let me do. No, no, you can't DJ. Well, I can actually DJ. Mm. No, no, you can't DJ. So it kind of got into the 80s, um, very early 80s. And I, I was putting my own gigs on in scout huts and, and old hotel ballrooms. Mm. And people would say, can we come DJ? And I say, no, because you didn't let me DJ for you. So, yeah, quite And right that was too. it. Yeah, so I, I'm the fat controller and um, you're not going to DJ at my night. You've got so. some legendary grudges, Joe. So. You've got 44 years worth of business. There's going to be a few Trust grudges me, picked up. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> they will be settled. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that, that was this whole thing with the cover-up. Um, there's always going to be somebody, i.e., the person who sang it, the engineer, uh, the producer, there's already people that have heard that track, so it's not a secret. And if you dig far enough back into a record's history, you will find these people. It was difficult kind of pre-internet, but now the internet's up and running. Um, you can you can find these people um, and, and ask them, you know, what is the real name of this record? Mm. Um, and and cover-ups were really funny because people used to, you know, cut pages out of magazine and stick it over with a with a bit of uh, glue um, and try and pass it off as something new and exciting. Well, no, actually, I heard that three years ago, and mm. um, that you know what you're doing. It's silly. <laughs> Stop it. I was mentored by Randy Cousins, and he was the kind of godfather of of the London scene and his vision of what would be played 25, 35 years down the line was prophetic. I mean, it was extraordinary. And he would sit me down and say, right, for 75p, you're going to buy this record. Um, and I sold it for over a thousand quid a couple Blimey. of months ago. You know, mm -hmm. and it was that guidance that without that guidance and being put on the right track, I wouldn't be sitting here talking at, in depth about a lot of parts of the northern scene. Mm -hmm. And um, there were divides, you know, there were particular sounds played in the north and in the London clubs, you had the London sound. There mm -hmm. was, um, you know, Alan Hanscom playing at places like the Water Rats and you, you had the 100 Club. And then when our club came along, um, these old shoes, we had particular tracks that you had to come to the club to hear. And then we'd, we'd travel, we'd go and do gigs maybe at Cleethorpes or we'd go to the Prestatin weekenders and people would go, what's that? Oh, we've been playing it for about two years. Mm. Wow, it's a, mm. you know, a 10 pound tune. 
this but this whole thing with cover-ups and you know I personally and this is where I might get a bit sweary it's called cop waving and <laughs> I, I don't have one of those and so I don't have to do that so I have had big records I've had the trophy tunes um and you don't need to do it mm. and but you know I suppose if you haven't got anything else in your life apart from a suitcase of cash and a bit of vinyl um you've got to have something to wave about haven't you and mm. show mm. off about and and they're workhorses at the end of the day bits of vinyl get put on the decks they make people jump about make them leave the club make them leave the event with a big smile on their face and they've done their job. They've transported those voices from 1964 into another time in 2020. And those voices came out of the out of the grooves and people heard them and thought, wow, that's amazing. So they're still doing their job. And that's why I buy records. I don't buy them for an investment. I buy them because I know they're going to make people happy. They make me happy. And I'm just a conduit. I just pass that happiness on to people. And if they don't like it, there's the door and I throw the refund at them. So, you know. <laughs> and add it to the grudge list. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that is the, the very best of attitudes, I think. I think oh, but you like the have. DJing Oracle, Joe. This yeah, is like, we, we like this. to my ears. Now, before we, uh, before we um, uh, shuffle off, uh, I also want to talk a little bit about Ramrock Records. Uh, because you. obviously you've, you, you've started and, and done all the homework by going right through the whole Northern Soul scene and beyond. Um, but, you know, I I came across Ramrock maybe a couple of years ago. I think it was the D.B. Cohen release. Oh, right, um, yes. Uh, the, I've only had one drink. I've only yeah, the wrong Tom's on it. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And I think it's a Snowboy mix as well. And that, to me, instantly sounded like a classic bit of reggae. Do you know, I felt like I knew it for years and years and years. I kind of got into the label through that. And what you're doing is really interesting. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the sort of three arms of the label and, you know, how, what your philosophy is of it? Yeah. Um, well, again, I am the fat controller, um, so nothing gets onto the labels without me. I am mm. the A&R department, so that's the bottom line, and I own the labels, so if I don't like it, you're stuffed. Um, <laughs> and so it all kind of started... Round about 2014, and um, Adrian Sherwood lives up the road from us, and he had a fabulous Ghetto Priest album and said, look, I haven't got, you know, the space or the time to release this. Would you like this um, to kind of put out? And I'd previously put out one release, um, the Ramrock All-Stars, to accompany the Gentleman Rude Boy exhibition that... Um, Dean Chortley put on at Somerset House and um, that's where we debuted it with Ox on the mic so I said yeah 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 it's looking a bit thin on the ground so I'll, I'll have that and so Richard Epps did the artwork and we released it and you know it's it's kind of become a bit of a UK classic Rodigan um, put it on as an exclusive and it was played you know on all the best reggae stations so that was great and then Greg Blackman came along and I heard his um, collaboration with Mr. Bird um, over and over. And so I licensed that from BBE. And um, I have a friend called John Oliver, who I worked with when I was on Invicta Radio. He was one of the sound engineers, and he's got um, DWR Radio. 
and he said do you mind if i have this you know i said no 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 take it as a promo and ooh, about two days later my landline rang and only three people have got the number. So I went, oh, hello, thinking it was my mum or somebody. And it was Tom Moulton. And, um, oh, wow. and he, said, he went, hi, <laughs> it's Tom. And I went, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, stop winding me up. What's your number? I'll ring you back. And if it had been like a Ramsgate number, um, I would have sussed them right out. Anyway, it wasn't. It was a New York number, so I rang him back. And he went, Did you hi. actually do that, Joe? Yeah, <laughs> you were like, I don't believe you. Like your yeah, bank trying to scam it. you or something. Yeah, I thought it was one of my mates really winding me up. So, so I, rang, I rang him back and he went, hi. So I said, um... So you're Tom Walton. Great. Okay. And so why are you phoning me today? He said, oh, I've done a remix of the um, Greg Blackman. And Ash was standing there. Ashley Beadle, my husband, was standing next to me. And uh, he said, who's that? Who's that? I went, shut up. It's Tom Walton. <laughs> and he said, um, he said, yeah, I've done a remix. And I said, well, send the files over and I have a listen. So I had a quick listen. And uh, I rang him back and I went, oh, Mr. Morton, it's very nice. You know, this is the guy that invented the 12-inch disco yeah. remix. I'm talking to this Legend. man walks on water, okay? <laughs> and I said, do you think you could extend the middle eight for me and make it a bit longer? And she's going, <laughs> are you out of your mind? Tom Morton is ringing you, offering you a 12-inch remix and you're asking him to extend the middle eight. I went... It's my remix. So, um, yes. So, and in fact, controller. So, um, anyway, he said, yeah, not a problem. So he went away. He redid the whole remix, sent it back to me. And I said, right, um, you know, how much do I owe you? And he said, you don't owe me anything. I enjoyed doing this and good luck with the release. And those 300 copies sold out in five minutes. Never, ever. I've got my copy. You may hold it and sniff the label. Thank you. That's, that's enough for me. I love that. That's Take what you can get at this stage. So, yeah, that was Ramrock Blue. And um, and then that kind of ticked along and we got lots of lovely people. Tom Glide, um, the French producer, very big on the soul scene, Grammy Award winner, blah, 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 lives up the road in Ramsgate. It's a hotbed of talent. So I... I kind of didn't know him and I spoke to him on Facebook and I said I'll meet you in five ran down the hill and he was sitting in the coffee bar in Ramsgate and I said oh that chitty track um please can I have that old school days and he said yeah 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 so we did a remix and that came out and we did Hill Street Soul as well Soul Train mm -hmm. and that came out that was wonderful and then Margate Soul Festival which is the My Soul Festival mm -hmm. um Tom got about half an hour with three of his artists on there so I got to meet all the artists which was brilliant and then um, a guy called Future Unit turned up in my inbox with this beautiful kind of 90s baggy um, trippy taking a few too many mushrooms kind of <laughs> track very kind of latin -y, summery brilliant so I had to invent Ramrock Red for him because <laughs> needs I must yeah. needs must man um so that was that was really good because then joseph malik came along and yes. you know uh, when i found he'd sent out his album diverse part two to 10 record labels and i was cleaning out ashley's um spam trap and i said oh what's this oh i'll have a little listen 
and there's a track on it called Love Bound and I burst into tears. Mm. So I rang up Joseph and I said, Joseph, this is extraordinary. Um, you got me at Love Bound. And I said, you know, where are you? He said, I'm homeless at the moment. I'm sleeping Ooh. on the streets. And he said, you're the only person that's rung me back about this album. <sighs> you can have it. And I went, right, well, we'll get to that bit, but we'll just get you sorted out with a flat. Um, yeah. So we got all that sorted. And then Joseph delivered this extraordinary album. And I went on to remix Love Bound. And I channeled my inner wrecking crew with the marvellous mm. Darren Morris. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of Ramrock Red. And we, we've just signed... Uh, three new acts um the lovely uh maxine scott um she just got a first at uni for music production and she's got an extraordinary voice and she does kind of uh neo soul jazzy stuff and then we've got um cherry and the fever trees who are 18 and um they're kind of like um the bangles on acid um so they're really good um and then there's a couple of people that i'm trying to entice onto the label i better not say anything because it might yeah, don't, don't it. read it on our account no don't, don't blow it don't blow it don't make the list Keep the keep the, the cover up, you know. Keep the cover on, exactly. so, so no one knows. <laughs> and then you can reveal them at the last minute. Yes, but I've got a big bit of news for you. Ooh. Oh yeah, it's an exclusive. You're the first people to hear this. Ooh. Oh, our first exclusive. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm stoked. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ramrock Retro was born today. Oh, congratulations! Thank you very much. It's it's kind of been like it has had a gestation period of nine months, and um, <laughs> we have uh, stalked everything, and we've got it all licensed. And um, the first kind of the first release is going to be the Gladys Knight tracks that were on Max. Stop and get a hold of yourself. Ah, um, and tell me, uh, tell her you're mine. So oh. it's going to be a double A side. Amazing. Um, and then there's some. Fabulous stuff in there, um, but you'd have to kill me after I've well, told you. Listen, or is we'll it the be, other way round? We will be all over that. Don't you worry. <laughs> we'll be, we'll be waiting for the postman every day. He'll <laughs> bring me that stuff. Yeah. Hey, how delightful to talk to you, Joe. We've had, had a really, really lovely time doing this. Thank you so much for coming on. Mm. You're very welcome. You're an absolute hero. I think oh. we should. Uh, you should be some kind of like musical agony aunt or something. Yeah. You really like, yeah. It, it's it's been a dream speaking to you. Really, we'll, we'll have you. a feature. We'll do we'll do like you know like sort of five Joe minutes says. with Auntie Joe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, one, one, one bit of advice to you. Um, mm. I used to run a gay night um, for many years, and a drag queen turned round to me and said, "If you ever get heckled, sweetie, just say is everything else as big as your mouth." I don't think so, and that's why. <laughs> so please adopt that if you need to. Um, Especially in wheelie great. waving situations when you're wheelie trying to intersect wheelie waving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's it really. Thank you for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, likewise. What a joy. Thank, thank you, you. Joe. Uh, thank thank you. you so much for the music as well. Mm. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. All right then, bye-bye. Make sure you have some